Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Let me clear my throat. All right, the title to our sermon here this morning is Two Very Different Students. We're going to meet the very first of these students as we begin in John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter 9, Jesus has just met a man who is born blind. Jesus sets him free from his blindness, now he can see. Well, as you might imagine, this very quickly becomes all the rage in his neighborhood. It's the talk of the town, and everybody's wondering, how are you able to see all of a sudden? I mean, how, how is this even possible? Well, a group of Pharisees are brought to this man, and they begin asking him questions. How are you able to all of a sudden see? And what he says in reply is, is that the man called Jesus is the reason why, even though I once had been blind, now I can see. Well, that's the very last thing that a group of Pharisees ever wanted to hear, and so they are claiming that it's a hoax, and they're acting like like he just made the whole thing up. And so they say, get his parents out here. And so his, his mom and his dad come out, and they start asking them, is this your son? Why, yes, it is. Was he born blind? Why, yes, he was. Well, how is he able to see? And in John 9, it says that they will not answer that question because the Pharisees had threatened everybody in this city that that if anybody had confessed Jesus in any positive way, that they would be kicked out of the synagogue. So they said, well, ask him. He's of age. And so they asked their son. And they asked him a question again. How are you able to see? And, And I think it's because they... They are trying to intimidate him into walking all of this Jesus stuff back. They're trying perhaps to to maybe catch him in a contradiction of what he said earlier. And he's like, I I already told you guys. It's that the man named Jesus is the reason why, even though once I was blind, now I'm able to see. And so what we find in John chapter 9, starting in the 29th verse, is as the Pharisees speak to this this once blind man about Jesus, what they say is, is that we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. And so the man answered, and it makes me smile every time I read this because it is as contemporary as a modern day conversation. Where he says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where Jesus comes from, and yet he opened up my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but anyone is a worshiper, or rather, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. So he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But really, verse 34 is what I really want to call our attention to this morning. Where the response, verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? 
And so they cast him out. Knowledge is absolutely crucial. We see it in the days, especially of the Old Covenant prophets, how in the days of the prophet Hosea, we we hear the voice of God crying out to, to Israel, to Jerusalem, as God laments and he says that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Likewise, we hear the prophet Isaiah also lament as as Israel goes into exile in Babylon, and what he says is that my people are going away into exile because of a lack of knowledge. What is happening in those two texts and in their lifetimes? Well, the people of God had forgotten about the law of the Lord. They were no longer teaching it to their children in a diligent way. They were no longer speaking about it when they sat down in their house, when they walked on the way, when they rose up in the morning, and and when they lied down in the evening. And yet what is most striking, though, is that we could just as easily be also destroyed inside when we hit the mute button on the wisdom of God and of the Holy One of Heaven. Knowledge is absolutely crucial and significant, but as crucial as knowledge is, knowledge comes with a disclaimer. On most bottles of alcohol, it has some kind of a disclaimer that that women should not drink alcoholic beverages during pregnancy because of birth defects. And it goes on and it says and it warns that, that consumption of alcoholic beverages impairs the ability to drive And it may cause health problems. Now as we can see in the scriptures, there is nothing necessarily evil or wrong with with occasionally drinking alcohol. And yet it has a disclaimer for a reason because this product can be abused. And in so many ways as it pertains to our knowledge of the scriptures, it has me wanting to take a pen and to write a disclaimer on the back cover of my Bible. Something like, these are the words of life. This is the breath of the living God. And yet, let the learner beware. I think about a disclaimer that the Apostle Paul gives to the church at Corinth that that is important and as essential as knowledge is, nevertheless, knowledge can puff you up. Or as Simon Peter had warned in his own letter, he says that that to all who accumulate spiritual knowledge, they need to also be adding to it a a spirit of self-control. And that's because knowledge can make a once humble man a very arrogant man very quickly. Knowledge can transform you into a snob who thinks that he knows everything about everything about everything. And to all who will drink of the wine of the holy sacred scriptures with improper motives or with no consideration to its historical context or with the wrong heart and the wrong spirit, it will impair your ability to enjoy the Christian life and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in my hand right now, I am holding up a diploma that I received from from a seminary. And I mean, it's very large and official looking. It's got the name of the institution in these gothic letters, very fancy. It's got my my whole name, David Ryan Creek. 
in huge font letters, and even larger letters that explains a degree that I received, and it's very official. It's got stamps and signatures on it. And yet, just because I have one of these, and not everybody else in the church does, just because I have a diploma from a seminary does not make me a demigod who is walking amongst mere mortals. As hard as I had to work for that diploma, at the end of the day, what is it? It's just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper that is gathering dust in my office in the basement. And that's all that it is at the end of the day. And yet, as we look at our first kind of learner this morning, and we look in the text in John chapter 9 at these Pharisees, what, what always blows us away about the Pharisees is how smart these guys were. If you have your Bibles, I just want you to open up to Genesis chapter 1 and to flip all the way to the end and to the beginning, rather, of the book of Joshua. And you just flip back all the way from the very end of Deuteronomy all the way to the very beginning of Genesis. And this is what most Pharisees had memorized. This is what they could actually quote. They could quote the first five books of the entire Bible. And unlike their, their Israelite ancestors, they, they had not forgotten about the law of God. They were teaching their, their children night and day, day and night, as they rose, as they lie down, and as they walked by the way. And yet the great tragedy is about most of the Pharisees is that there, there is something very glaring that was lacking within them, wasn't there? And that was when they had, had gone to the sacred words of the living God and they began thinking that, you know what? We have amassed and accumulated so much knowledge that now, by gosh, we have a monopoly on the truth. But they also weaponized that exact same truth as they began using it, wielding it as a weapon of shame and intimidation and of manipulation in the lives of other people. And I think Jesus most, most aptly narrows down what their issue is in John 5.39 where he says to them that, that you search through the scriptures thinking that, that in those scriptures that you have life. That's a very interesting statement because as holy and as sacred as the word of God is, even the word itself does not give us life. Only Jesus Christ is the true life giver. And they were looking to a knowledge of the scriptures for, for their own salvation. And Jesus is saying that it doesn't happen that way. And yet, especially what I want us all to really take notice of in John 9, though, is that what is going on as this man who was once blind begins instructing them about Jesus. He teaches these Pharisees about Jesus. I mean, here's a man who has never once spent one second in the school of the rabbis. He is not their intellectual equal in a spiritual conversation by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, as he speaks about Jesus Christ, who, who he himself barely knew anything about, this everyday working class man could have been a teacher to the teacher of Israel's on this day. 
And he is a teacher to the teacher of Israel's. But what is the attitude of these listeners, though? What is the response of these students to the teaching of Jesus that they are undergoing? I mean, when one of their own brothers is no longer blind, I mean, you would have thought that these guys would have been jumping up and down in the streets praising God for what he has just done in the life of this man and of this brother. And yet notice in verse 34, though, how they are responding to this, what their attitude is. It is a spirit of condemnation where they say to the man that that you were born in total and utter sin. In other words, what this means is is that you deserve to be born blind because of, of what a wretched, evil sinner you are. And yet they also respond with a spirit of condescension because what they say, what comes out of their mouths is, are you really trying to be a teacher of us? Are you really trying to teach us anything? I mean, who are you? Worst of all, they pronounce a curse upon him. Now in the text, as it says that they put him out of the synagogue, really there's a lot... As, as it is lost in our interpretation. Now, primarily, there were two degrees of excommunication in Hebrew culture. One was, was more so reserved for, for lighter offenses. And the Pharisees were so meticulous about this, they had come up with, with 24 ways that you could receive a lighter offense in terms of excommunication. Or if you broke one of these 24 rules you would be excluded for an entire month from entering into a synagogue. And you also could not come within six feet of your own spouse or your friends for that one month. And yet here's where this gets very interesting, though. There was another degree of excommunication that was far more severe, where now what we're talking about is a lifetime banishment. We're talking about very strict social ostracizing for the remainder of your life. Or if you receive this kind of excommunication, you would be dismissed from the synagogue for the rest of your life. You could not speak to anybody. They had informed all of the merchants that you are not to ever sell anything to this person, even if it's food. And then they would pronounce a curse that would brand you for the rest of your life. And it's believed that this is what the Pharisees had been threatening. Anybody who confessed Jesus, that we will kick you out of our society for the rest of your life if you confess Jesus. You see, this is why his parents are are as terrified as they are to answer that question. And yet notice what the attitude and what the spirit of their son is, though. Where without even a moment of hesitation, not even a hiccup of hesitation, he just blurts it out three or four times that the man whose name is Jesus is the reason why I can see. Because he had confessed Jesus three or four times, he is cursed. And he is kicked out. He is banished from his own society, from his own family for the rest of his life. You see, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Or even as he is all by himself now, all of a sudden, Jesus says, I will stand with you. And we will enjoy spiritual living together. 
See, the problem with these kind of learners of the Pharisees is that they began so well wanting to actually accumulate knowledge, but, but as they, they had done this, a lot of them reached a point where they, they actually were convinced that, you know what, we've got God all figured out. We've got the scriptures mastered. And just the idea of another person trying to instruct them about anything have been blasphemy to their ears. And so they're saying, do you know who we are? Nobody can teach us anymore. That is one kind of student that does not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, thankfully, there is another kind of student. And that is what I want to speak about for the remainder of our message this morning. I'm so glad that I can say that there is an alternative attitude that we can respond to the gospel and to the ways of Jesus with as we are taught. And it comes to us in the book of Acts in chapter 18, if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24, we, we meet a man whose name is Apollos. And here is how we are introduced to this great Christian named Apollos. Acts 18, verse 24. Where it says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native, or, or um, I'm a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man who was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And so here's a man who comes from, from a city out of Egypt, Alexandria, that was renowned and distinguished for its academia. If you were an orator who came from Alexandria, people listened whenever you had anything to say. I mean, Apollos' knowledge of the scriptures absolutely would have rivaled these ancient Pharisees in John chapter 9. And yet so much more than that, though, Apollos was a contemporary of, of Paul and Peter as one of the, the very faces of the early church. And yet, as we all learn, though, in the latter part of verse 25, though, there is something that even the mighty Apollos is lacking. Even though he is eloquent and he's speaking accurately the things about Jesus, and he's competent in the scriptures and all of this, Verse 25 says at the very end, though, though he only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. And I mean, that is very understandable because all this time he's been living in Egypt. That's a very far journey from Jerusalem. And so, I mean, here's a guy who has never even heard that there is a baptism of forgiveness of sins for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And yet, notice what is happening, though, in verse 26, though. It says that Apollos began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when, um, it says, as Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so we see a similarity between John 9 and Acts chapter 18, where, where here is a very intelligent, educated man who is being taught by other people who are not his educational equals. I mean, Aquila is just a tent maker. 
And I mean, if Apollos had the spirit of the Pharisees of John chapter 9, Apollos very easily could have just, just completely interrupted Aquila and Priscilla and said, who do you guys think you are? Aquila, you are just a tent maker. Are you really trying to instruct me here? And yet even more so, this was an age when women were not educated. Women had been looked down upon as second-class citizens who just did not know as much about God or about anything else as men did. If Apollos had the spirit and the attitude of, of, of that first kind of learner of a Pharisee, he, he could have easily have said, you a woman trying to be a teacher to me? Do you have any idea who I am? He could have said, how dare you try to teach me anything? And yet we have a discrepancy here in, in Acts 18 as opposed to John chapter 9, though. I mean, what was the attitude of Apollos? What was his response as they began teaching him further about Jesus? I mean, he actually stands there. Even the mighty Apollos, who, who already knew so much, he stands there and, and he allows a husband and a wife to instruct him. And he just stands there and he listens to every word that they have to say. Verse 27 and 28, what we notice is the outcome of this. Where it says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to, and wrote to the disciples in order to welcome him. And when Apollos arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. I mean, Apollos already was a mighty, eloquent orator of God, but now he's even mightier in his understanding, in his delivery, because now he is cooking with, with Acts 2 baptism. And my brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. This would have been like if in the 1960s, Billy Graham had been told by, by a janitor that, listen, that sinner's prayer that you are, are working with at your rallies, that is incomplete. You should be baptizing them into Jesus Christ. And then Billy Graham listens to that and he starts doing it at, at all of his rallies from that point forth. That's what a radical student that would have been like. And yet, what about you and I, though? As individuals who largely have spent our, our um, lifetime in a church tribe, the Churches of Christ, where our mantra for a very long time is we call Bible things by Bible names and we search the Scriptures for ourselves, incredible things that we have always been about. You know, the interesting thing is that the very best learning that we will ever receive as Christians, it oftentimes and it usually comes from the very lowliest of instructors. Now, a moment ago, I spoke about going to a seminary. And I had the privilege of sitting at the feet of among the very wisest, most brilliant theologians that the American church will ever know. From my childhood until now, I have heard among the most renowned orators who have ever preached. 
And yet it's not even close, though. I would say that the very deepest, most life-changing spiritual learning that, that I will ever undergo did not come from a seminary professor or from the golden-tongued oration of the revivalist, but rather where my, my most life-changing, beautiful, deep spiritual learning has derived from is from the sage tutelage of blue-haired widows whose quiet wisdom of the scriptures far surpassed my own. It came from recovering meth addicts and former prostitutes in a homeless church whose worship wept in gratitude with hands lifted to the sky. It came from sparrows in parks who taught me the bliss of a carefree spirit when my heart had been sickened with worry. And you know, whenever I want to speak about theology with, with anybody, I rarely pick up a phone and call a fellow minister. When two ministers get together, I don't know what it is about it, but it's just so easy to start complicating the beauty of the gospel and jargonizing it into religious rock and Scientology. Now, when I want to speak about theology, I have conversations with my wife, with the women of the church, with four-year-old children, with homeless Christians living out on the street corner, with lilies in the field and flowers in my backyard. I have discovered that that is where the good stuff comes from. That is where the very best stuff comes from. Because there is no one who is depicting the kingdom of God as accurately or as vividly as these are. And this is why on our last ladies' day, as a whole bunch of ladies had been inside our auditorium, nobody even knew it, but, but I was upstairs in the balcony lying down on a pew, and I, I had a notepad, I was taking notes. And as Tracy was speaking about how to respond as a Christian to tragedy, I was listening intently. As Mary Ann had been speaking the gospel from the perspective of a gardener, I was hearing something that I had never heard before in my entire life as a theologian. And I'm listening to Amanda and to Denise and to Lori and to Maisie and to Don and to all the rest, and, and one speaker after another, one person after another who was praying my understanding of Jesus Christ was exploding by the seconds. You see, if we have the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees, we think that we have a, have a monopoly on the truth. But the problem with that is, is that no one person has a monopoly on the truth. We all have plenty of room for for um, further knowing and for further maturing in the Spirit. There is no one political party who has a monopoly on morality or on the truth. There is some light in both. And there's plenty of darkness to go around in, in, in all of those parties. There is no one church tribe even on the face of this earth who has a monopoly on the truth. But, but as one writer says, Jesus plays in 10,000 places. I was mentored by a minister who has never set foot in a Church of Christ service. 
And as I came to him, I was, I was just another preacher who think, well, I already have mastered this. So I'm just going to tell everybody what we think we already know. But what he introduced me to, though, was, no, 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 take a very hard second look at that text. And a third look and a fourth look. And I mean, what it had showed me is that for all that time, I was living and teaching at the harbor. And now he is helping me to get far away from the harbor and to swim in a very um, much deeper ocean of learning and of knowing. It revolutionized the way that I teach. I have seen other people from, from other church tribes who, who are outside of our Church of Christ heritage. And I look at the way that they worship. And there's been several of them where I'm not looking for, for all the stuff that they're doing wrong. You could do that anywhere. You could do that here. And yet I take very close notice of the joy that is in these people. I see the emotion, raw emotion, tears pouring out of their eyes as they sing to Jesus, I love you. And I say, you know what? I can take that emotion and that joy and passion, and I can bring that into my own worship of Christ. No, it doesn't mean that I'm turning backflips off of chandeliers, but I'm noticing that I'm also no longer throwing Jesus a weekly funeral service anymore either. It revolutionized the way that I worship. And I have even learned from Muslims Seeing how in Muslim countries, three times a day, a song is played. And I mean, everybody stops everything that they're doing. They all hit the ground and they begin praying. Hundreds of years long before Islam came about, Jewish people had been doing this. We can read about it in scripture. Three times a day, what they do is stop everything that they, they're doing and they pray. And I feel envious that we don't have anything like this in American Christianity. And so I decided, you know what, I'm not going to be praying to Allah, but I can take that exact same energy and devotion, and I can pray to Jesus Christ that way. And so lately, I have on my phone an alarm of the actual bells of Jerusalem. And every single day at 8 a.m., at noon, and at 5 p.m., no matter what I'm doing, as soon as I hear those bells, I stop everything that I'm doing. I hit the ground and I begin praying my, my heart out to God. You see, what we see in this message here this morning is that we are destroyed in an absence of knowledge. And yet there is a kind of learning that can also destroy us. The good news is, is that there is a student who is rescued and who is enlightened to salvation and to a deeper, more intimate following of Jesus. And this is the listener and the student who never stops seeking the heart of God, who never stops searching the scriptures as if it were the first time who never stops gazing that mesmerized glow as they hear the words of life. And it's a kind of student who never, ever, ever stops listening to the voice of God in Scripture. I was mentored by a minister who I had mentioned a moment ago, and one of the wisest things that I ever learned from him is when he said, don't try to master the Scriptures. 
but rather let the scriptures master you. That is the spirit of that kind of student who's, who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And I would like to elaborate on that quote, and I would also like to say that we never see God or his scriptures or the bread or the cup as anything but a divine mystery that we need to learn and to delve and to wave deeper and deeper and deeper than we ever have before. As, as the wise man Solomon writes in the book of Proverbs, he says that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And the reverence of Jehovah Yahweh God is the beginning of wisdom. And so what I want to invite you and I to in the days ahead is whenever we open up these holy scriptures, is that we do not look at it and say, well, I've already read that one. I already know that story. Rather, what I want us to do is to take a very, very long second, third, and fourth look at the details of that text. Look at it as a mystery rather than a destination we have already arrived at. And yet, more importantly than even that, though, lastly, what I want to invite us to in the days ahead is every time before we open up the scriptures that we say it out loud to God as we pray is that we, we invite God and what we say to him and confess is that, God, I do not know everything about everything. God, I do not have you all figured out. I have not mastered your scriptures. As you know, good and well, I am wrong all the time, God. And yet I want to know you more. So Jesus, help me. Jesus, I want you to teach me. Jesus, I want you to know that I'm listening now. The kingdom of heaven and the church of Christ belongs to such as these. I close with this thought this morning. Ordinarily, I am never nervous as I preach. And yet the one time that I was overcome with, with um, nervousness as I taught was when I gave my graduation sermon at seminary, where about three or four minutes into my, my very last sermon at that school, I, I looked down and I, I noticed all in, in one row, Gerald Payton, 81 years old. Sitting close to him is 79-year-old Ed Wharton. Sitting close to him is Doyle Gillum, 79 years old as well. These are the kind of guys who I am convinced could quote the entire Bible in Greek, in Hebrew, and probably in Latin for that matter as well. And I just remember having a moment as I gave my graduation sermon where I'm looking down at these guys and they're looking at me and I swallow hard and I'm like, what is Gerald Payton doing sitting down there? What is Ed Wharton doing as a listener this morning? And what am I doing up here as the preacher of these men? I mean, what could I possibly say that they have not heard 16 billion times? And yet I took a very hard second look at these men, sages in the brotherhood. And I noticed that they are sitting up in their chair. And they have that mesmerized glow in their eyes 
as they heard the words of life coming out of all mouths, my mouth. They were not mesmerized at me. That is very obvious. But rather they were mesmerized because they had the attitude of that second kind of student. That I don't care who is standing up there and how much less he knows than I know. Whenever I hear those beautiful words from any mouth, I will stop dead in my tracks. I will sit up high in my chair. And I will listen intently as if there is no tomorrow. My brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven belongs to students such as these. So to a world that so much struggles with the heart of the Pharisees sometimes, may we continue to be those very rare kinds of people in the world who, who have the heart of the blind man, of Apollos, and of a child.